Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. The title of my presentation plays a lot on the concept of a world without meaning, and um, the, the, I suppose one part that the Vice-Chancellor didn't introduce me as is um, I'm actually French originally, uh, and it's Guillaume Durodier, but nobody could ever pronounce Guillaume at school, so it became Bill. And I had the good fortune in 1994 of reading a book called Un monde privé de sens by Zaki Laidi, who is... Uh, a French international relations theorist now at Sciences Po in Paris, but at the time at École Normale Supérieure. And it was only translated into English four years later as uh, a world without meaning. And a lot of what I will talk about this evening plays a lot on that in as much as he looks at what are the consequences of the end of the Cold War in a really deep way. What, what does it mean to live in an age when the conflict between left and right is over? Um, and what are the ramifications for organizations, institutions, and individuals who very much had defined themselves in relation to that conflict. Um, the first part of what I want to do, though, and I will come back to this at the end, is to uh, look at the Mumbai attacks in 2008. Um, and during those incidents, something very interesting happened. The, one of the perpetrators of the attacks was someone called Fahadullah, and he killed lots of people in the Obroy Hotel, and he took one of their cell phones and then phoned up an Indian television station and amazingly conducted a live on-air interview with an Indian TV station during the attacks. And I just want to play you, even though not many of you in this room will be Urdu speakers, I want to play you a little bit of the... Uh, of that tape because I think it's quite important and I will tell you what it says आप लोग कहां के रहने वाले हैं किस किस गुट से संबंध है आपका हां हम हैदराबाद के रहने वाले हैं और दक्षिण मुजाहिदीन से तल्लक है हमारा आपकी मांगे क्या-क्या हैं आप क्या चाहते हो क्या है आप क्या कहना चाहते हो क्या मांग है आपकी सब्र करो एक मिनट हां जी दैट्स अ डिमांड डिमांड क्या है नाउ आई after ranting a lot about um, if you send the commandos in, we're going to send them to heaven. And then he's asked by the first anchor, uh, who are you, where are you coming from? And he mentions the Deccan Mujahideen, which nobody had, at that point had ever heard of. But then the bit at the end, um, they both in turn, the two anchors say to him, what are your demands? And then he says, what did you say? And the second anchor says, what are your demands? And then if you'll listen to it again, which I won't do, you'll hear, he said, basically, he puts the phone down, and in the background, he says, what are our demands? <laughs> and I personally find that the single most important vignette or insight into the nature of contemporary terrorism that's around, because it points to the meaningless of it, of it all. And... You know, when I was young and at school in West London and the IRA occasionally forced us out on a kind of 
uh, a bomb threat. Everybody knew what the IRA wanted. The British state knew what the IRA wanted. Any Republican knew what it, what it was all about. And even the kids in the school knew what it was about. Here you had a bunch of people supposedly commanded from Pakistan by lashkar e Toiba in constant phone contact with their supposed minders. But when push came to shove, didn't really know what it was for. And even if you say to me, oh, well, they're just young cannon fodder sent by some criminal mastermind in Pakistan, since 2008, nobody has come forwards to articulate a demand or a purpose behind the Mumbai attacks. One of the risks, of course, is the consequence of that, is that every single media commentator, academic and pundit projects into the vacuum what they think the agenda was. And that's a really big problem because it tells us more about how we think than about what was really going on. This um, talk is also drawing quite a lot on Ulrich Beck's uh, Risk Society, which I think was 1992. Um, but also, uh, I draw quite a lot from Alistair McIntyre's moral philosophy from In After Virtue of 1981, simply because I'm very interested in why risk has become such a dominant all-consuming narrative that everybody organizes everything around. You know, just 20 years ago, risk managers did not sit on the board of every single major company or on every government department. So we do have to ask the question, how did that come about? And McIntyre would make the point that, you know, if you came to his house and lit up a cigarette, for instance, he wouldn't, he's unlikely to say, oh, excuse me, I don't know if you know, but there's all this literature on the, the risks of secondary tobacco inhalation. He's more likely to say, excuse me, it's my house, do you mind not smoking? In other words, most normal people use moral persuasion rather than deferring to risk in terms of trying to achieve what they want. And in, at the social level, in the past, they would have used political principles rather than using numbers and risk management in order to pursue their objectives. Now, I think it's fairly evident to most of us that the concept of risk has exploded into public prominence in the last 15 to 20 years. And there are considerable numbers of related jobs and journals that never existed before with the title risk in them. There are centers for the analysis of risk management, conferences, courses. It's kind of become a big, a, a big industry. One significant study on risk makes the point that if you look at references in British broadsheet newspapers in the first half of the 1990s, there's really just a few references to the word risk, maybe 2,000 over the course of a year. By the end of the 1990s, newspapers were using the word risk 20,000 times. And obviously the point there is that surely the world hasn't become 10 times more risky over the course of the 1990s. So there must be uh, either something fashionable or it's connecting with some kind of zeitgeist that it's become this kind of thing that everybody refers to. And as I often ask my students, how did we get here without risk managers advising us on how to do everything? Um, you know, as has been the case for the last 10 years. I mean, it seems to me that we live in a fairly successful, organized world where, you know, risk managers were not driving everything. Risk and security have become big business, as I've said, but they're also a significant role for government. Um, and that can have perverse consequences. Um, I remember being at the Royal United Services Institute in, uh, I think, 2003, when in one of the breaks at, a, at an event there, 
one of the um, speakers came up to me and said, Bill, you know, I need the supply side of the respirator industry, which is gas masks to you and me, I've got it all ready and waiting. We just need something to stimulate the demand. <laughs> and you kind of think, well, this becomes really perverse now because obviously you've invested a considerable sum of money into um, stocking up and tooling up. So obviously there's this kind of profit motive potentially. I'm not accusing anybody of willfully pursuing this. But I think it's important for us to recognize that public officials are not immune to this process. Not because they make financial capital, but they can make moral capital out of being seen to be doing something in order to, to address perceived risks or people's fears. Now, if you uh, look into the risk literature, as our Vice-Chancellor has, you'll be familiar with a whole series of tools that are very commonly used. This is the supposed risk matrix, which the government also now has a national uh, risk matrix for, for various security threats. And what you do is you map on the probability or likelihood of an event happening from uh, rare at the bottom there, A, all the way up to absolute certainty or nearest damn it to certainty. And you look at the possible impacts. And then presumably your job is to start off by addressing those risks that appear in the top right-hand quadrants in red and then gradually work your way down. There's all sorts of problems with this kind of approach, of course, which is what do these words mean? What is rare? What is possible or likely? Is a terrorist attack likely or just possible? Um, some people might say it's actually quite unlikely. It's got nothing to do with the frequency of terrorist attacks. Maybe we deal with terrorism the way that we do, not because it's a significant risk, but because it poses significant political problems. Uh, and therefore, maybe we shouldn't be using the language of risk when we talk about it. Um, the, in terms of impact, we're, what is the impact? I mean, that's a subjective factor. Um, the impact on me of being in a car accident on my way home may be very different to the impact on one of you. And therefore, what we're looking at is, is a degree of subjectivity that comes into the standard risk equation that risk is probability times impact. And if you think about it, when people say risk is probability times impact, they're trying to m multiply a quantity, probability, by a quality, impact, which is actually an impossible task. How do you quantify the qualitative impact? So there's problems with the standard model anyway. You're then often introduced to something called the risk management cycle. The risk management cycle argues that what you have to do when you're a risk manager is you start off in the top right-hand quadrant. You're meant to brainstorm, identify all the possible risks that your project, institution, or whatever it is might face. Then you assess them, so you try and quantify them. Then you try and address the, the most significant ones. Then you go through a process of review. And then, like a hamster, you run round, round and round in that little wheel probably forever. But that raises problems too. So, for example, when the um, British consulate in Istanbul was bombed in November 2003, the Foreign Office, I think quite rightly, launched a risk assessment exercise of all British embassies, consulates, and other missions overseas. So you can imagine that they identified a series of threats, you know, how close are you to a major road, uh, you know, what are the obstacles in the way, they then sought to assess those threats and quantify them, can we replace glass with shatterproof glass, um, and then go through a process of management and review. But if you follow the logic of that, the solution ultimately would be to not have uh, an embassy, consulate, or mission overseas. 
the reason we have these um, institutions overseas is precisely because we used to have a sense of mission. If you were to simply make the, the building impossible to reach and bomb-proof, you've actually made your job much harder in terms of a diplomatic mission of finding out and having a sense of what's happening on the ground and being able to liaise with ordinary people and connect with ordinary people. It's an exercise that the Americans did after the bombing of their embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in 1998, and it led them to basically building fortified uh, complexes outside of every urban centre, buried under the desert with very bendy roads leading up to them, it kind of undermines the point of, of having a mission overseas in the first place. So one of the risks of doing this um, is that you lose sight of your primary objective. Actually, when you conduct a risk management exercise, you should always start, your, start off by asking yourself, what's our primary purpose? What are we trying to achieve here? Um, and you need to be careful that your risk management doesn't undermine that. Otherwise, it can dictate the, the agenda uh, and generate rather unexpected consequences. Then there's a whole series of other factors that risk managers will tell you about, which is that you know, people are a bit fickle. They're unpredictable. How you might respond to a particular set of data or a particular situation on a Monday morning might be very different to the way you do it on a Friday afternoon. People are different themselves, um, and you can't really guarantee, even presented with the same situation and the same evidence, how people are going to respond. That's why professional emergency responders and the military spend a lot of time training so that they can at least try and make sure that they will vaguely respond in the same way. In reality, the information you need to make a sensible risk management decision may not be available to you at the time in which you need to make the decision. Um, time itself may be unmanageable. If I say uh, to uh, you know, a set of soldiers, I want you to go out and take out that you know, enemy post up the hill, you can't, you know, you, the, the, the major or lieutenant colonel can't turn around and say, well, if you give me a month, I'll conduct a proper risk analysis. Um, the reality is most of us live in the real world having to make risky decisions in real time. Um, the 9-11 Commission uh, in the United States of America noted particularly the danger of ideas becoming enculturated. Security services and the military in particular um, have a potential flaw in as much as there will be a tendency to recruit a certain type of individual that uh, is trained to think in certain kinds of ways. Um, and we know that after 9-11, there was a very big discussion about, uh, oh, well, the terrorists, they, they're either poor or they're from poor backgrounds, they're probably ill-educated. And actually, all the evidence since 9-11 has suggested that in many instances, the, the reverse of that <coughs> is, is probably true. And then the other point uh, being made there at the bottom is that events themselves can be random. I mean, in the speak of most American generals, shit happens. And the 9-11 itself might be one of those really rather unpredictable one-off events. Is the logical consequence of it to reorganize the world as if 9-11 was going to happen every single day of the week? Uh, which is, of course, in many ways, what we have done to airports, uh, thereby doing the terrorist job for them. There's also um, a tendency, and I, I did a project for Chatham House a, a few years ago where we were looking at the 
security of the electricity supply across Europe. And one of the things that had been noted is that when um, there's a major failure to the grid somewhere in northern Italy or in Switzerland, where a lot of hydroelectricity comes from, then it has knock-on effects in many other regions in Europe. Um, and we were basically studying how has all the investment since 9-11 been used. And what we found, probably unsurprisingly, was that there had been an awful lot of attempts to um, harden uh, power stations and substations against terrorist attacks. But the reality is that most failures of the grid are to do with the aging nature of the grid, uh, in America, it largely hasn't been replaced since the 50s. Um, and then it's rather unexciting problems such as, you know, high winds, animals nesting in pylons, uh, and trees collapsing on, on, on electricity cables that invariably uh, bring down the supply rather than a terrorist attack. Um, so, but of course, it's much more exciting to focus on the kind of exotic extreme threats than it is to recognize what is the mainstream problem. And if you're going to be on BBC Breakfast News in the morning, you'd rather have security expert under your name than squirrel expert. You know. <laughs> so, now, those of you who uh, work in this area will know that the gentleman on the right is Paul Slovich, who's one of the um, historically most prolific uh, workers in this area, done lots of work in kind of psychometric assessment of how different groups in society, different types of people respond to the same uh, risk or respond to the same uh, impetus. And amongst many, many, and I'm distilling like 40 years of academic work here, but amongst the factors that he identifies, uh, number one is control. Uh, so his view is that people prefer situations where they feel that they're in control, even if it exposes them to greater risk. So the classic example of that is that when there's a rail accident at Hatfield or just outside Paddington or wherever, everybody then takes to the roads the next day, despite the fact that we all know that you're exposing yourself to considerably greater risk by driving to work than by being driven by First Great Western. Um, but the reality is people would rather kill themselves than be killed by somebody that they didn't know, even if that possibility was, was fairly remote. He also looks at how um, people, uh, in relation to risk, respond very differentially according to a sense of dread. There are certain words that invoke uh, an entirely disproportionate sense of, of fear. Uh, cancer, for instance, invokes dread in people even though we live in an age where many cancers can be treated, it's an emotional word that provokes a disproportionate response to the probability of you know, the situation that you may be finding yourself in. He also looks at the issue of fairness. We live, uh, amazingly, in a society where people do have a kind of innate sense of fairness and what's acceptable and what's not. And in particular, uh, risks that are perceived to affect certain social groups but not others are uh, disproportionately targeted by society to, to be redressed or addressed. Um, and the, the most significant one of those is any risk related to children. Even though it might be small, uh, we have a sense that it's unfair. We also have uh, you know, a, a particularly 
um, contemporary view of um, how important children are to us and how um, vulnerable they are, and therefore society is prepared to divert a lot of resources to redress that. My only problem with Paul Slovich's work, and I could go through various other theories, such as the cultural models of uh, Mary Douglas and Aaron Vildavsky, but all of those points may be true, that we prefer to kill ourselves, that we don't like certain words, and that we have a sense of fairness, but it can't possibly explain the proliferation of presumed risks that has emerged in the last 15 years. So just to confirm that, I just want to run through, remind you, uh, a few of those big risk debates that happened really since the kind of late 80s, early 90s. Bovine spongiform encephalopathy is a disease that affects cattle. And interesting, in 1996, the then agriculture minister, Steve, um, Douglas Hogg, and the health minister, Stephen Dorrell, made an announcement in the House of Commons that there might be a link between bovine spongiform encephalopathy and variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. The consequence of that, uh, I'm sure many of you will know, was fairly dramatic. The government introduced a ban uh, of beef on the bone. But I want you to look at the graph that I've put just to the right of those labels. I don't know if, how, how well you can pick it all out. But this is looking at what happened. The, the problem of toxic spongiform encephalopathies was well known. And it wasn't you know, suddenly emerged in the mid-90s. They had kind of emerged really over the course of the previous decade. If you look at 1980, there's hardly any cases. And then it shoots up to 1988, is that point up there, when there were just under 40,000 cattle that year born that went on to develop BSE. And the government at the time had introduced entirely appropriate measures for dealing with the problem. They banned the feeding of so-called specified residue material to bovines. In other words, you couldn't grind up cows and then feed them to other cows. Um, and you can see from the graph that had a fairly dramatic effect. So that by 1996, we're looking again at a very, very low level uh, of incidence of BSE. But I've just pointed out that the announcement in the House of Commons was made in 1996. So there's an important thing to recognize here, which is that the perception of the problem is completely separate from and divorced to the reality of the problem. If there was a problem, it happened a decade earlier and had largely been addressed by the government. But then in the mid to late 90s, it became a major media issue. Some of the media were saying that there would be up to 500,000 cases of variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease per year uh, by the end of the 90s. Now, I don't know how many of you have looked recently. I looked earlier today because I thought I should prepare for this talk. But worldwide today, well, there's been 177 cases in the United Kingdom to date and another 52 across the rest of the world. So just over 200 cases of, of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. The link to BSE, by the way, remains kind of in the level of contestation. More people die falling down the stairs in any one year than have ever died of eating mad cows, assuming that's the, the problem as how you define it. But of course, the world hasn't been reorganized around the need to live in bungalows and get rid of these dangerous staircases. So you do need to kind of ask yourself the question, what was it that catalyzed this you know, 
Obviously, one can always say, oh, with the benefit of hindsight, but I'll come to that maybe later in my talk. But what was it that propelled this into the public domain in the mid to late 90s? In my opinion, it was more to do with the tail end of a conservative administration that couldn't be seen to do anything right. And there was basically the media were going to hound them out and the public were you know, desperate to get rid uh, of John Major's government as it then was on the, on the back of uh, Margaret Thatcher's government. And there was nothing that they could do, I think, uh, that would have looked good. When John Selwyn Gummer tried to feed his daughter Cordelia a hamburger at a village fete, she famously recoiled because it was too hot, and the media had a field day saying, look, even the children know that this food is dangerous. <laughs> Leading Gummer to say, it's not the cows that are dangerous, it's the people. The, um, and then we can go through a whole series of these uh, kind of debates that emerged at this time. By the way, it's very important to note that there's an institutional consequence to these uh, incidents. Um, in the 1997, the European Commission reorganized all of its directorates and services around the fallout of mad cow disease. It trebled the size of the consumer health uh, protectorate or the consumer policy and health protectorate division. Uh, it used to be DG24. Um, and it trebled their number of staff. It started up a risk assessment unit and a rapid alert unit that had never existed before. And as I wrote in one of my first academic papers, if you treble the number of people looking for this kind of incident, you might actually treble the number of incidents because obviously you know, people have to find something to you know, fill the time during the day job. No speech by uh, Jack Santerre at the time went by without a reference to mad cow disease. John Major described it as the biggest single crisis Britain had faced since the Falklands War. Franz Fischler, the agriculture commissioner at the European Commission, said it was the biggest crisis the European Commission had ever faced. Then we can go through a series of other examples. There was the debate about mobile phones frying your brain. Now, the mobile phone debate is a bit more mediated because the reality is it's such a useful bit of technology, we all have one. Uh, and so there's a kind of democratic propulsion to, to, to kind of reject the, the, some of the scaremongering that emerged around it. But in a very good book on the matter, Adam Burgess, who's now a reader at the University of Kent, makes the point that if you look at what really happened, it was much more driven by cultural factors than it had anything to do with a debate about science and the dangers of so-called non-thermal radiation. For instance, in the north of Ireland, which, as you will know, had a history of conflict between two communities, local politicians on the ground thought, what a fantastic way of trying to unite these two warring factions against a, a common enemy, the mobile phone operators. So they actually turned it into a very big issue. In the south of Ireland, which at the time had the youngest demographic profile of the then existing European Union, they basically promoted an image of being open for inward investment, embracing new technology, and it was hardly a debate at all. And you could see that right across Europe. What really drove the debate about mobile phone safety were more to do with cultural elements than necessarily anything to do with science. I wrote a paper looking at um, softening agents in PVC uh, in, I think, 1999, and you'll know that children's toys, which are often squidgy and bath time rubber ducks, which are uh, also malleable, they are made that way by adding esters of ophthalic acid, or known as phthalates. And again, there was a, a debate propelled by certain interest groups. 
And, but if you looked at the scientific evidence, it was basically saying to replicate the kind of dose given to laboratory rodents that causes a problem from phthalates, your child would have to be eating something like 40,000 plastic ducks a day. And as one of the American commentators on this pointed out, if your child is eating plastic ducks, it's not what's in the plastic you need to worry about. <laughs> the, and then we go on, the debate about genetically modified organisms in this country, which led to a moratorium on the introduction of these kinds of uh, new crops. Now, the interesting there for me was that if you spoke in private to uh, Sir Christopher Lever and various other plants, leading plant scientists, they would say, Bill, you know, like, what you need to know is that these are the most tested products we've ever released into the environment. I mean, these have been studied, you know, for years, uh, and it's much more specific than the normal way of plant breeding, which involves mixing up the genome with strong chemicals or nuclear radiation and then randomly seeing what happens. Actually, you know, we think these are pretty good uh, crops. In public... Because of the impact of the previous debates about mad cow and the danger of mad scientists and the risks that they pose to society, the kind of public pronouncement of the plant scientists was much more equivocal. They would say things like, of course, we can never eliminate all risk and you can never be sure and therefore we would need, we would recommend the need for further studies. Now, my view is that if your leading scientists are saying one thing in public and then a very different thing in private, then again, the problem may not be the risk, but it may be to do with the confidence of the people uh, having and leading the debate. And you'll also all be, I guess, familiar with the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine debate that was initiated by Andrew Wakefield and his notoriously dodgy paper in The Lancet, which basically uh, took 12 self-selecting cases, eight of whom were his patients and who understood his agenda of trying to get compensation on their behalf with a purported link uh, to childhood autism, which has subsequently been thoroughly discredited. Um, and, of course, the risk there, another risk, was that if you didn't want to get your child inoculated with the new MMR vaccine, which, again, by the way, had been the most tested ever vaccine when it was released you were reverting to a series of separate inoculations which themselves uh, posed risks of their own, potentially, as well as not inoculating. And these debates didn't just emerge in relation to science and technology. We can go through a whole series of other debates that were happening around the same time. Uh, after uh, Harold Shipman killed something like in excess of 250 of his elderly patients by uh, giving them sedatives, there was a big debate about how safe your GP was. It led to the government in this country introducing a ban on GPs taking painkillers or strong painkillers on home visits. So here you get another perverse effect of risk management, that in order to protect against one bizarre, extreme, twisted individual, we have nationalized and institutionalized pain and suffering for everybody. And that was effectively the solution that was introduced. Um, all doctors were now to be suspected. Um, we know the ongoing saga of Madeleine McCann in relation to child abduction and abuse. And of course, I'm not trying to dismiss any of these cases. They're all significant issues in their own right. But we need to maintain a sense of proportion and perspective. Madeleine McCann, as you know, disappeared on holiday in Portugal in 2007. Prior to her, there were Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, who were also uh, abducted and abused in 2002. 
The thing is, you know all these names precisely because these kinds of incidents are not that frequent. If these incidents were happening every single day of the week, you would have lost uh, any sense of who the names of all these children were. So again, there's the, an element of a, a complete loss of proportionality in some of these debates. And actually, I noticed recently that at the Royal United Services Institute last year, Sir Richard Dearlove, who's the former head of the Secret Intelligence Service in this country, makes the point that even in his time, well, before his time uh, as head of uh, MI6, Ne the government never spent more than about 30, 38% of the intelligence agency's budget in fighting the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Now, in the war on terror, they were spending in excess of 50% of their total budgets uh, challenging Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And he himself points to a loss of perspective and proportionality in some of these debates. School bullying I won't go into, but there's a fantastic book by Helena Goldberg that looks into that. Um, one of the problems here is that there's an elastic sense in which we define bullying. When I was young, and you've heard from the Vice-Chancellor, I'm a very old man because I've done all those degrees in weird places a, a long time ago. Um, but, you know, to, sh to show that you had been bullied at school, you really needed to show a, a bit of blood, a torn shirt, you know, a, a black eye. Now, of course, people will talk about emotional bullying, which, again, I'm not trying to dismiss, but, of course, it means that the term has become more elastic. And the consequence is you can create an epidemic of bullying according to how you define your language. Uh, and even sunbathing, which I always uh, put up there, usually for Chinese audiences, because I point out that the sun hardly ever shines in this country, and yet there is the kind of uh, people going round, reminding people to cover up because of the danger uh, of the sun. But actually, if you look at the work of um, Sam Schuster, who's a dermatologist at the University of Newcastle, uh, he would point out that actually the melanomas that emerge because of exposure to the sun are things like basal cell and squamous cell melanomas that are relatively easily treated and benign. Malignant melanoma, which is the killer that everybody worries about, happens usually with a very sudden onset, quite often in places of your body that are not exposed to the sun, like the underside of your arms or the soles of your feet. And in his opinion, the jury's still out on whether there is a clear correlation between these factors. The only point I'm trying to make here is that there's an explosion of debates repackaging everything as risk and basically articulating the need for risk management to deal with that. Some of the common elements of what I've discussed so far, I think, a crisis of confidence in terms of institutions saying one thing in public but believing a different thing in private, mistrust of the authorities, I think, in relation to BSE, that's the most evident example of that, in relation to mobile phones, cultural drivers rather than scientific ones, a loss of proportionality and the redefinition of problems like bullying. The literature on risk, um, some of the interesting sociological literature on risk also shows a shift from talking about risk in terms of probability towards focusing much more on possibility. Well, what if, what if Saddam had weapons of mass destruction? You know, and what if he had the technology to deploy them? And what if we weren't prepared? And that represents a very significant shift in how we think about the world. We're no longer looking at positivist reason, scientific evidence. evidence. We're speculating. In many instances, speculating quite wildly and adding one what if onto another what if, leading to a demand that all public officials focus on so-called worst-case scenarios. 
One of the, my favorite examples of worst-case scenario planning happened during the outbreak of 2009 H1N1 uh, pandemic influenza. Margaret Chan, the Director General of the World Health Organization, described it as a threat to the whole of humanity. Now, I'm sure she thought she was doing her best to uh, advise, inform, uh, and prepare people for a worst-case scenario. But as I point out in one of my papers uh, in the Journal of Risk Research in, in relation to that, maybe sometimes our public officials ought to remind the public of the most likely scenario as well. The world is not made up of a series of world cases, uh, of worst cases. Uh, and actually triangulating between likely scenarios uh, and possibly speculating about the worst case would probably be a more productive way to go forward. One sociologist also makes the point that even the way that we use the word risk has changed. 20 or so years ago, risk was a verb. It meant an active engagement between yourself and reality. You took risks. Taking risks yielded opportunities and benefits just as much as problems. Today, whenever you see the word risk in newspapers, it's invariably prefixed by the word at. It's become a noun, a thing that we have to ward against. You know, we are at risk of the inevitable uh, that we need to mitigate and treat. So here is my questions for you. Is all this because we actually face more risks than ever before? I think we can probably quickly dismiss that. Um, most people will recognize that we still live in the healthiest, wealthiest uh, of all worlds that have ever existed, where people live the longest, even in sub-Saharan Africa, than, than in, ever, in, in any previous period. Anthony Gibbons, when he was director of the LSE, uh, and Ulrich Beck would have made the point that we face different kinds of risk. We face the risks of what they call reflexive modernity. In other words, in the past, human beings faced the risks of nature, earthquakes, floods, famine. But today, of course, we create nuclear power stations and we, promote, we provoke new risks that were unexpected, that were not part of that. But of course, that begs the question, when did we start tinkering around with nature? And actually, if you look at the history of humanity, it is a history of separating ourselves from and tinkering around with nature. When human beings first started to herd animals rather than being hunter-gatherers, they created a situation whereby the diseases of animals could transfer to them far more effectively than had ever happened before. And it led to enormous extinctions of human beings at the time. So we have already been doing this for a considerable period of time. Is it any worse today than ever before? I'll leave it for you to decide. Giddens goes on to, uh, after his wreath lectures, to write his book Runaway World and suggests that we live in a world where, because things appear to us to be moving faster than ever before, then maybe there's the possibility of risks propagating faster and are being unable to keep up with social and technical change and therefore risks coming to swamp us. But again, if you're in China and India, maybe the world is changing faster than ever before. But sat from the uh, you know, Georgian confines of Bath, it's a bit hard to, to see that, in my opinion. If you look at the period from 1800, when the steam engines were only used to pump water out of mines, and actually I think Richard Trevithick makes the first steam locomotive in 1816, in 1864, steam engines had bridged the United States of America. That's a period of phenomenal change, a period when a small village called Manchester, outside of the town of Salford, 
went from a population of a few thousand to a few hundred thousand in one generation, which is a scale of change that is not even planned for the Thames Gateway. What about the period in the last century, from 1908, I think the, the Wright brothers' first powered flight, again by the late 60s, Neil Armstrong had walked on the moon. To me, that's a century of phenomenal change that your, uh, in many instances our grandparents lived through, people not being able to fly to people walking on the moon. To every single piece of technology that you're familiar with in the kitchen and around your house, apart from information technology, being a normal part uh, of your existence. So maybe the sense that we live in a runaway world is more to do with perception rather than reality, and particularly in this part of the world. So my question to you is maybe our perceptions have changed. And if it's our perceptions of risk that are changing rather than risk per se, then the solution isn't going to be risk management because risk management is designed to address risk per se. Rather, we should possibly be looking at perception management or when I'm cynical, uh, I would suggest as it used to be called political leadership. <laughs> now, why would our perceptions of the world change? And I just want to talk about two different processes to you, um, because I realize time's running out. Um, first of all, I think we have to recognize that we're more politically disengaged as a population than many generations in, in the course of the 20th century. People fought for the right to vote. In the last election, even in this country in the, this year, 66% turnout, uh, I think 37% of which voted for David Cameron, but that's 24% of the eligible electorate. 24% is his mandate. And you know and I know that actually a lot of people who voted for Cameron didn't do so because they thought he had a vision of Britain in the 21st century that they wanted to endorse. They did it as a negative vote against other people that they definitely didn't want in charge. So actually you could say that that 24% mandate, you could, let's say let's halve it, we can call it a 12% mandate. And you know and I know that young people below the age of 30 are half as likely to vote as those aged above 30. So that 12% maybe becomes 6% in terms of the future of elections in this country. That's a huge shift in terms of disengagement from the decision-making process of your own country. And at the same time, people like Robert Putnam at, uh, at Harvard have looked at the breakdown or the, the erosion of social and community networks in society. People don't go bowling alone, but they don't do it as part of an organized team as they would have done in the 50s. They usually do it as a one-off on their birthday. There's the idea that someone organizes a roster between different factories and universities in an area and organizes a league for no money is no longer in existence. He looks at the erosion of what he describes as social capital in his very important book. And I want to suggest to you that the consequence of the twin processes of disengaging from the decision-making process of your society, as well as your informal networks, teams, associations, Boy Scouts, Girl Guides, Women's Institute, and everything else being eroded, means that more than any other generation in the last century, you are living life on your own. And when you're living life on your own, it's far easier to get you worried about the threats that might exist in the real world. If I put you on your own in the middle of a tropical rainforest at 3 o'clock in the morning and start breaking a few sticks behind you, you will have a very different experience to if you're there with 50 of your best friends. Living life on your own is very discomforting, and it leads to very bizarre consequences. You know, a generation ago, people could send their children to school on the bus, 
on their own, unsupervised, in the confidence that other adults would tell them off if they were misbehaving or help them if they were in trouble. Now, there's no evidence that other adults won't do that. We have stopped trusting other adults. Al-Qaeda didn't come and tell us to stop trusting other adults. We did it to ourselves. So we have got a very distorted perception of how useful other human beings are, even in our own society, that undermines our ability to deal with risk. We'd like to think that the Chamber of the Houses of Parliament looks like the picture at the top, but in reality, those, that's what's happening you know, on a day-to-day -day basis at the bottom. The consequences of this is that subjective impressions about the world go unmediated or unmoderated. We're constantly seeking reassurance from people who we say, well, you should be regulating, you should be looking out for me for, for this. And it actually displaces what I think is the real problem, which is that we don't know where it is that we're aiming for as a society. It also becomes a breeding ground for mistrust and cynicism. The more government sets up agencies designed to protect us, the more we become a bit sceptical about whether they're doing a good job, and, and it kind of feeds off itself. Government, of course, is very keen to reconnect with us, and it does it in particular around those big existential fears that we have relating to our health and our personal security. That's why these are the biggest areas for kind of risk and fear entrepreneurs in the world today. But rather than challenging your perceptions about the risks that are out there, as it might have done in the past, by saying, well, actually, you're wrong that this new bout of flu is going to wipe out your children. You're wrong to take your children out of school. It rather prefers to adapt to people's concerns because it has a sense that it needs to renew its mandate and be in tune with the times. And even in certain instances, panders to people's fears which is actually a very big problem because the fears then become truly real and organised around. Risk management then and risk communication have become the organising principles for leaders that lack a clear political vision as to where they want to take society. It becomes a cover for a directionless and insecure elite. Oh, I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm only doing this because the numbers tell me that I have to do this. But, you know, numbers don't say anything. They're numbers. And what people are doing when they hide behind the numbers is that they're concealing, either consciously or not, their moral values and their political principles. There's a big difference between planning on something being a problem and acting as if it already were. And raising awareness, which is the constant refrain I hear from every single campaign group on the planet, actually can end up driving people's concerns and creates what in the British Medical Journal is often referred to as the worried well. There was a moment after the 9-11 attacks and the anthrax incidents in the US where people travelling on the Maryland subway smelt something strange and they started, can you smell that? And yeah, no, I can smell, there's something weird here, you know, and then you know what, my skin's beginning to get a bit itchy. And then like, people became nauseous and their eyes were crying. Eleven people were hospitalised for what turned out to be window cleaning fluid. Okay? So the, the, we create psychosomatic illness because we live in a culture that is encouraging people to think that the world is about to end. I put that phrase at the bottom because it's very important. You know, I put it, if you recall, at the beginning that often policy is made in order to be seen to be doing something. Now, I'm going to skip this slide because I'm conscious of time. I want to take us back to terrorism. This is my penultimate slide. In April of this year, during the general election campaign, 
Tristan Hunt, the then Shadow Education Minister, visited a school in Northamptonshire for a photo opportunity. Some of you may recall this episode. He sits down next to a child and says, well, if you had a vote, who would you vote for? And the child goes, uh, you, Kip. And Tristan Hunt, who only three months previously had written an opinion piece in the independent newspaper saying that Britain must uh, actively oppose UKIP rather than just accept its existence, says, oh, very well, um, why is that? And the child says, because they kick all the foreigners out. And Hunt says, oh, I see. And then he kind of walks off, and that's the end of the moment. Now, I don't know about you, but wasn't that his moment on camera to maybe explain why foreigners aren't the problem or why UKIP is a problem or whatever it is that he thinks he believes, but he kind of evades the opportunity. And I think we're living in an age where increasingly authority denies itself and evades the opportunity to clarify its principles and where it's going and why. Let me give you a couple of other examples. The publication on the right, Teaching Controversial Issues in the Classroom, looks at incidents in France and in this country where teachers trying to teach the Holocaust in schools where there might be a higher than average percentage of Muslim children find it quite challenging. In France, there's been episodes of Muslim kids saying it's not true, it's rubbish, or even laughing at the mention of Auschwitz and saying, ha, 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 you know, six million Jews, really funny. And this publication goes some considerable way towards saying, well, if you find it challenging, according to your context, maybe it's best not to push it too far. And again, there's a danger here that we're prepared to rewrite history if we find it uncomfortable in certain contexts. The chap on the left, uh, bottom left, is Avinash Tharoor. Avinash Tharoor wrote an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal on the 27th of February this year. He was at the University of Westminster at the same time as this guy, Jihadi John, also known as Mohammed Imwazi. Avinash Tharoor wasn't in the same classes as uh, Mohammed Imwazi, but he writes of an experience that he had in one of the lectures at the University of Westminster. He did international relations. And during a class on Kant's democratic peace theory, the, uh, a young woman in a niqab stands up and says, well, as a Muslim, I don't believe in democracy. And Thoreau writes in his piece, well, you know, those kind of statements were fairly common at the University of Westminster. That wasn't the shocking bit. The shocking bit was that the lecturer made no effort to engage her, to say, well, maybe democracy is good for women, or maybe it's important for Muslims, or maybe you know, let's talk about the different kinds of democracy and the problems that democracy has. It was like the fear of hurting or causing offence or appearing rude, or, or maybe even it's quite possible that the lecturer didn't have a coherent argument to defend democracy. And so what a lot of sociological commentators that I'm very interested in following are beginning to point out, that all of this begins to amount to a form of moral capitulation, a kind of cultural confusion where we're not even prepared to argue what it is that we believe in. And maybe we don't even know what it is that we believe in because we've lost the ability to argue for what it was that we believed in in the first place for fear of causing offence or for whatever other reason, for the kind of general directionless that the post-Cold War world has created. What I want to conclude with is that what we're looking at in many of these cases is not so much a need for risk analysis as a need for politics, for political debate about you know, what's going on in the world. Climate change 
has an element of risk analysis to it, but ultimately what we choose to do about it will be a political debate. And that's a debate that people shy away from when they hide behind the so-called evidence. Not that I'm disputing the evidence, but the point I'm making is there's more to it than just the evidence. Maybe resilience, which the government is very keen on promoting in certain instances, could be better served by uh, a, a nation that had a greater sense of purpose. Ultimately, resilience isn't a piece of technology that you buy to defeat terrorists. It's not just about more intelligence gathering, better detection equipment, new vaccines, concrete bollards outside of public buildings. It's also about an attitude that says, I'm not going to let this incident get in the way of what I wanted to achieve. But then you need to know what it was that you wanted to achieve in the first place. And that's the debate that nobody's having. You know, real resilience requires knowing who you are, what you stand for, and where you're going. And that's a political debate. And the young kids that we see leaving places like Bristol and South London and going off to Syria, in my opinion, are not so much radicalized as estranged. They're living in a world where they don't actually recognize anything that they want to uh, connect with. They live in a world where there's a, a prevent duty introduced by the government. And I do talk to civil servants, and I can assure you that no one believes that you can legislate your way out of terrorism. No one believes that. But they're doing it to be seen to be doing something. And then universities will implement it to be seen to be complying with the government's new agenda. Now, if you live in a world where all of the important institutions and individuals are doing things because they want to be seen to be doing them, rather than because they passionately believe in them, that's a world of bad faith. And young people, in my experience, are no different today as they ever were in any age or any society. They're precocious, they're energetic, they're inquisitive. Above all, they want to believe in something and belong to something. And if they look at the institutions that we have and think that that's not going to be achieved here, then even the idiotic rantings of someone in Syria might appear principled in comparison. We live, uh, and I don't want to be too depressive uh, <laughs> in conclusion, but in a world where we do need to recreate a sense of meaning and what we're about if we're going to begin to challenge some of the threats that in large part we have created for ourselves. Thank you.